who said women can't have great sex into their 80s? Welcome to Sex in Queen City, the ultimate podcast that delves deep into the world of sexual medicine. Join hosts, board-certified OBGYN Dr. Sasha Davenport, Assistant Professor and Director of Female Sexual Medicine, and Rachel Murray, board-certified women's health nurse practitioner. We have dedicated our careers to educating and empowering individuals with the evidence on this too often neglected realm of health. This is your one-stop shop to learn about everything from low libido to the ways in which health conditions like cancer can have a profound impact on sexual intimacy. This is not just a podcast, it's a movement built to liberate you from any sexual health issues that may be stealing your joy. Yes, you can absolutely have great sex in your 80s. In fact, we see a good number of patients in their late 70s and 80s who are very much active and interested in maximizing their joy and pleasure. Because why not? In this episode, we talk about the most common myths we hear from patients about female sexual health. So let's dive in. Myth number one, I'm the only one going through this. Okay, this is just not true. When we look at the numbers, what we know is that at least 43% of women at some point in their life experience some type of sexual problem. And then when we look at patients who fit into different categories like postpartum patients, those numbers go all the way up to 89%. Myth number two, I just have to live with this pain. Also simply not true. I mean, how many patients have been told that painful sex is normal? You know, I have patients come in all the time and tell us that they thought for years that they had to live with their pelvic pain. Yeah. And how many patients do we see who have been to a medical office and told that they should just have a glass of wine to help with their pain or help with their libido? Yeah. Pelvic pain is just not normal. And especially when you're experiencing it in a chronic form, you absolutely should seek help. And if you're not getting the help you need or the answers you want from your clinician, it's time to find someone who really specializes in this area. So Dr. Davenport and I are both members of the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. It's called ISWISH. Dr. Davenport is actually a fellow of this society, uh, and I am working toward my fellowship. Um, But this is, if you go to their website, you'll be able to find providers who specialize in female sexual medicine, and uh, many of these providers are specializing in pelvic pain as well. So let's move to myth number three. Myth number three, I'd be cancer, so I just have to live with this. This is a topic that Dr. Davenport and I are both extremely passionate about. It's so often that when a woman is diagnosed with cancer, the focus is very much on the diagnosis and the treatment, and that's absolutely necessary. But what gets missed is that a woman can still live a vibrant and amazing life with a diagnosis of cancer. And many of the treatments, many of the surgeries that we might do for for women who have cancer can impact aspects of their sexual life. So it can impact body image. It can impact um, vaginal dryness, which, which can cause pain. And so many women think that they just have to live with this and there aren't treatments for it. And 
truly, you know, part of my pet peeves is that this isn't part of the conversation from the very beginning, right? Like what we know is sexual health is a quality of life measure. Um, So really, we should be talking about this from the get-go. Why isn't it part of the tumor board plan? Why aren't we counseling our patients from the beginning? Hey, this is the treatment we're going to undergo, but also you can expect this, this, and this, and these are the tools we have in place. For those of you who don't know, Tumor Board is a uh, collaboration in the beginning of a patient's treatment that basically formulates their treatment plan. Yeah. It's an interdisciplinary meeting amongst the clinicians, essentially, um, where we come up with a comprehensive treatment plan. Myth number four, use it or lose it. Okay. I hate this one. <laughs> yeah. It's just not true. Um, you know, I unfortunately, I still hear this a lot. Yeah. Um, and there's people who will say, say this, but not necessarily mean use it or lose it. They mean that you have to schedule sex if you're interested in keeping up your sex life, which is fine. But also, I just want to say that there's some people who are asexual. There's some people who are not interested in having sex or not distressed by it um, for various reasons. And that is also okay. But this whole idea of like, use it or lose it, if you don't have sex or force yourself to have sex, you're not going to be able to in the future. Um, It's just false. And I think even if we are saying it in a way that's more playful or it's not intended to be as direct as what is implied, it's still really important when we say these types of things um, that we're really discussing it and what we mean. Because in general, sex and intimacy are not things that we talk about in society or in a medical office or even with our friends. So it's very common that we see patients who hear something like this and they take it at face value and they say, well, I guess I just have to deal with my painful vibrator or deal with my painful sex so that I don't become too tight. And the physiology of this and the medicine behind this, it's just not that simple. Uh, So we really need to be talking with women and talking together and educating as to why we are giving the suggestions that we are giving. Myth number, what are we on? Myth number five? I think so. We'll say myth number five. (laughs) Um, Great sex ends at menopause. This is huge. But the point is Great sex does not end at menopause, right? The average age of menopause in the U.S. is 51 years old, and um, we have a lot of tools. So if you're experiencing pain because of vaginal dryness or your libido is not quite the same and you're like, hey, I'd really like to be having great sex, you should be. Come see us. Yes, absolutely. Uh, We have uh, so many incredible tools now. I think just in general... Um, It's important to know, you know, in our office and in many sexual medicine practices, the focus is not only on sex, but it's on hormone replacement therapy, um, which is its own topic. But the point is that after menopause, life goes on. It can be incredible and women can feel good. And there are so many things that we can do. Um, And nine times out of 10, what we need to do is give a woman vaginal estrogen and that fixes years and years of pain that then leads into other issues. So just know that we have uh, things to talk about if you are going through this. And if vaginal estrogen doesn't cut it, we have a lot of tools. So um, we don't want you to feel like there's 
a one size fits all, right? Yeah. There um, are many different tools we have in our bag. Okay. What are we on? Myth number six. six. Okay. My labia have to look a certain way. way. Oof. Mm, <laughs> yeah. Do you want to take this one or do you want me to? Um, I don't know. I could I could rage about this one, but you go ahead. I think, you know, my big takeaway that I hope that everyone gets here is that this can turn into something significant. So what this often leads to is women coming in and uh, wanting to have procedures done to actually change the way that their labia look. And this can lead to issues with the nerves. It can lead to additional body image issues. Um, and labia can be normal in all different shapes and sizes. Uh, there is the wall of the vulva. Is it the vulva, the vagina? The wall of the vulva that women can look up online. Okay, we're going to get back to you on that one. Um, we'll put a we'll put the wall a, of the vulva. The wall yeah. of the vulva. Okay. Like, wait, which one is it? So if you Google the wall of the vulva, you can see so many different vulvas with labia that are larger, that are smaller, um, and these are all normal and fabulous myth number seven stimulation is bad this is just not true um so you know i think a lot of folks come in here and they are often embarrassed by the fact that they self-stimulate and really self-stimulation is really healthy right and so these conversations need to occur when people are young, right? I think a lot of us grew up to be socialized to learn that this was shameful, but the conversation should really revolve around this is something you do in private. This is something you do to discover your own body and what is pleasurable. And I think most importantly, how are you supposed to communicate to another human what is pleasurable if you don't even know what's pleasurable for your body? Yeah. So there's a big push out there now um, that I hope will get bigger and bigger uh, in terms of transitioning sex education so that it's not only about teaching about STDs and teaching about birth control um, and safe sex, but also teaching about how to understand your own body so that you can experience sex and experience intimacy in a way that feels good to you. And this is education that people just are not getting. Um, and self-stimulation is, is very normal. And one of the most important things about it, like Dr. Davenport said, is knowing, you know, that helps women understand, it helps you connect with yourself, first of all, but also helps you understand your body and what feels good. And the other thing that's important to remember for women after we have had multiple partners, um, and we may have had good sex, but now a woman is having pain, is that self-stimulation can actually bring blood flow to the area. So there's a physiologic purpose to it as well that can be really, really valuable. Myth number eight, and not to beat a dead horse here, but I really want to emphasize this. If you have low libido or you can't orgasm, it is not all in your head. These are real issues that a lot of people face, and there are absolutely individuals who specialize in this sort of thing and can help get you the medical treatment that you need. Yeah, absolutely. Myth number nine. The vulva is not the vagina. It is not the vagina, folks. So this is 
one of my favorite areas of sexual medicine. Um, and part of it is that there are the, the vulva is so much more. The vagina is so much more. There's the clitoris. There's the vestibule. Um, we love reviewing anatomy with women who come into the office. Um, I don't know if you all looked at the amazing Jillian Anderson dress that was at the Oscars. It was all over Instagram. Uh, and that was it was beautiful. Um, she wore a dress that had vulvas all over it. It was gorgeous. It was white cream dress. She wore it beautifully. I think it's awesome that she was beginning to get the conversation going. Um, but the issue with this dress is that she referenced it as being a vagina and no shade to Jillian Anderson at all. Again, she was incredible in that dress. And I think it was such a bold move. Um, but it's important that we're talking about these uh, parts of the body and accurately uh, naming what they are are. And these are two very different parts. Yeah. And uh, often what we do with our patients is we use a mirror. And it's funny how many older individuals say to me, oh, yeah, I've never looked at my vulva with a mirror. And so then we're naming their anatomy for the first time. And they're like, oh, yeah, I'm going to go home and I'm going to teach my daughter who's like about to go to college yeah. about her anatomy, which honestly, I'm really grateful for. This is the conversation we need to shift to. We need to shift to having these conversations that are educational for our kids so that they feel empowered and aware of their body as they transition into these situations, you know, where they're potentially partnered. Yeah. Um, and what is the big oh wow moment that we're always having in the office with our patients about their clitoris? They always tell me that they did not know to look at it that way or that one of the things we commonly see is a condition called clitoral phimosis, you know, where the hood sticks to the clitoral glands or the actual pee. And individuals are like, oh, no, no one's ever told me to look at it that way. Not once. And this is not any um, not meant to be anything negative toward an OBGYN office. I've worked in an OBGYN office for years. Dr. Davenport is an OBGYN. Um, but generally speaking, in any general office where we are getting assessed, no one talks about clitoral phimosis, and this can significantly impact the sensation a woman has. It can be the cause of her pain. And so many women are living with this forever. Again, simply because we're not talking about the anatomy correctly. Myth number nine. Number 10. Number 10. Number 10. Moms can't be sexual. Um, so, you know, I was recently reading this book. It's called Bringing Up Baby. I'm, I'll be honest, I'm about a third in. And she talks about how in the U.S. we are socialized that when we are mothers, our primary and only role is to be this mom. We're maternal, right? That is, that's it. And in France, you were very much still viewed as this individual. You were still very much a sexual being. You are a mother, but you still hold this identity. You don't lose your sexuality. And I love that. You know, why is it that we feel like we have to wear this 
one hat and we're not allowed to have our our sexuality anymore. Why is that seen as selfish or inappropriate? Why aren't we having conversations about this? Yeah. Um, and I, I don't know about for you, Dr. Davenport, when you became a mother, but for me, it was actually an opportunity to experience life and independence in a way, which sounds sounds like the opposite of how we think about it, but it was um, something that I hadn't really considered before in terms of just getting to learn who I am in my own skin as a mother. So there was me becoming a mom, but also me learning what makes me feel beautiful, what makes me feel good, um, and how can I maintain my independence and um, still be an incredible mother, but be strong and sexual in my own body. Um, and that's my hope for women everywhere is that that can be the conversation that we're having instead of just, um, you know, feeling like we we now have a role and our role is to be knee deep in bottles and strollers. Let's also talk about the percentages here, right? Like yeah. up to 89%, like I said earlier, of mothers um, or parents with vulvas mm -hmm. will experience um, some type of sexual problem. And yeah. yet, yeah. this is not a regular part of the postpartum screen, yeah. right? And let's talk about the fact that the data tells us only 50% of women in the U.S. show up for their postpartum appointment, yeah. right? So we need to talk about this at all of the milestones at their annual visits, yeah. too. Yeah. And I know, um, Dr. Davenport, you know this. I'm not sure if she's talked about it in Bringing Up Baby, but uh, the pelvic floor PT. So in Europe, every single woman gets yep. sent to pelvic floor physical therapy in the United States. It's it's getting better. Many of our patients know about it, but many don't. And the reality is that the pelvic floor is getting thrown off quite a bit in pregnancy, um, and this can lead to significant pain for the for a long time. It can lead to loss of urine, lots of different issues. Um, so women need to be educated about this. Myth number eleven: HRT is bad for me. Okay, so. Um, we're making really big headway here, which is exciting in terms of educating women about HRT. But um, Women's Health Initiative is out the door, y'all. It's that was 22 years ago at this point. Uh, you know, the yes, there are some small risks with HRT, but there are also can be some incredibly huge benefits. We know that this can be protective of the heart. We know that this can be protective of the bones. Um, we know that it can greatly increase a woman's quality of life um, and be a game changer for her. And for years, so many women have been terrified of estrogen um, that it just doesn't need to be the case. What number are we on? I think 11. Myth number 11, you just need more lube. Oh, 12. Sorry. We're going to 12. Yeah. Okay. You just well, need more lube. You lube. Yes. Um, sometimes you need a little bit more than lube. And I think, listen, I think lube is great. Uh, all for patients who come in here, get that lube handout about like the different kinds. Yeah. Um, and you know, that what, what the benefit is of one versus the other. Um, but sometimes the issue is a lot more than lube, right? That's another way that people often get, dismissed when they have pelvic pain is just being told rather than have a glass of wine, you just need more lube. And simply, that's not always true. 
Yeah. Um, lube helps in the moment. It's not going to help actually change the vaginal tissue. And often the issue is with the vaginal tissue. So uh, the conversation is more nuanced than just to say, here, let me give you this tube and call it a day. So that concludes our first episode. We hope you will subscribe. We both are on Instagram, Dr. Sasha Davenport and Rachel Murray, WHNP. Please message us. Let us know what interests you and excites you.